Amen. We are here this morning because the Lord is good and faithful. And he is good and faithful to always come and minister to us in gatherings like this. And he is good and faithful to use his word to continue to sustain and strengthen our faith in his son and to impart faith to those who have not yet trusted in Christ. And so we're going to go to God now in prayer and ask him to do all of those things as we look to the Bible this morning. So join me and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is astonishing that you, as the holy and righteous judge of the universe, could ever fellowship and be with sinners like us. And we thank you that you are not just righteous and holy, and we praise you because you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We praise you and we thank you that you have seen fit to not only send Christ to be the atonement for our sins and the righteousness that we need, but you have united us to him by faith. And so we pray that you would come and minister to us yet again now. Show us above all things, show us our Savior today. Fill us with gratitude and joy and wonder at the fact that we stand forgiven. So we pray for you to come and do that now. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Saints, friends, I want to begin by making two big statements, significant statements, and I want you to mull them over in your mind. Statement one. At its heart, corporate worship is about the forgiveness of sins on account of Jesus Christ. Statement two. At its heart, the church is about the forgiveness of sins and the fellowship of the saints as those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Now, I have phrased those sentences the way that I have on purpose. Of course, much more could be said in each case. Volumes could be written on what corporate worship is. Volumes could be written on what the church is, but the statements still stand. One, at its heart, corporate worship is about the forgiveness of sins on account of Jesus Christ. Two, at its heart, the church is about the forgiveness of sins and the fellowship of the saints as those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. What do you think? There is no greater or more fundamental need for the believer than to be forgiven of our sin, to have our sin covered, and to not have our sin that is real and grievous counted against us. So it is a great sadness then for the church to ever assume the forgiveness of sins. It is a Great sadness for the church to ever obscure the forgiveness of sins by throwing a bunch of clutter on top of that. And it's a great sadness for the church to get things so confused that to say something like, the reason we're here today is the forgiveness of sins on account of Christ sounds wrong somehow or inadequate. We're looking at Psalm 32 today. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you have them 
with you. Blessed are the forgiven. Perhaps you've already seen the sermon title. What a privilege to get to consider that together this morning. As you've had a moment now to turn to Psalm 32, we're going to now look to God's word and I'm going to read Psalm 32 for us before we go any further. This is the word of God. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. We thank God for his word. I have four points for us and then an additional reflection at the end. So four points and then an additional reflection. Point one, which will be a significant piece of the message today, is blessed are the forgiven. Point one, blessed are the forgiven. We're going to look primarily at verses one and two during this time together. I'm going to read a little bit of these verses again for us. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, let me comment first on what these verses do not say. They do not say, blessed is the one who has done no transgression. Doesn't say, blessed is the one who has no sin. Doesn't say, blessed is the one who has not done iniquity. So let's go ahead from the beginning, from the jump, acknowledge some basic biblical truth. Not only does Psalm 32 not say what I just described, no such person exists amongst the sons and daughters of Adam, meaning a person without sin without transgression, without iniquity. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, Ecclesiastes 7.20. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. What that means is that like Adam, none of Adam's children have done what God requires. Everyone sins because Everyone is a sinner, is the testimony of the scripture. Both of those things are a problem. 
the sins we commit and our corrupt nature from which those sins come. Consider the words of David in Psalm 51 where he describes himself as being brought forth in iniquity. I was conceived in sin, he says. Or Jesus in Mark chapter 7, he says, out of the hearts of men come all kinds of evil. And he lists them. We sin because we have evil hearts. Paul in Romans 5 or Ephesians 2 makes it very clear that through Adam's original disobedience, the many, that's his children, his posterity were made sinners. And now we are by nature children of wrath. We do bad things. We sin. We break God's law. And we do that because we have inherited a nature that is bent toward sin. So Psalm 32 does not say, blessed is the one who has no sin, blessed is the one who has not committed transgression, blessed is the one who has not done iniquity. What it does say is, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. He has transgression, it's forgiven them. Blessed is the one who has sin, but it's covered. Blessed is the one who has done iniquity, but the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, does not count it against him. So maybe you are newer here at CBC, or maybe you're newer to the Christian faith. Maybe you don't know. You've never been exposed to what the scriptures teach about these things. We, I can speak For the members of Covenant Baptist Church, we rejoice that Psalm 32 does not begin with words like blessed is the one who has not committed transgression. We rejoice that it doesn't begin with blessed is the one who has not sinned or who has not done iniquity because if that's what it said, we would all be cursed, not blessed. But what is all of this? Again, maybe you're newer, maybe you haven't thought these things through. What is all of this language about transgression being forgiven and about sin being covered and iniquity not being counted against us by the Lord? What is that? Why that kind of language? Why is it significant? Well, one of the things that we need to say is that God is righteous and good. He punishes evil. He rewards righteousness. He's a just and impartial judge. That's what the scripture says of him. There is no curve in God's grading system. There is no compromise. The standard, if we are going to be declared just by God, is perfection. So again, what is all of this language about transgression then being forgiven? If God requires perfection, how is that possible? If God is holy and righteous, what does that mean that sin is covered? What does it mean that Iniquity is not counted against a person by this good, holy, righteous God. What does that mean? These verses, Psalm 32, 1 and 2, and the entire Psalm, Psalm 32, only make sense in light of Jesus and God's plan to redeem sinners through him. Let's say it again. This psalm only makes sense in light of Jesus Christ and what he would come to do. That's true of every passage in the Bible, by the way. I don't know if you've thought thought that way or if you've been taught to think that way. Every passage in the scripture, every verse in this rather large book 
should be approached with this question in mind. Where does this stand in relation to Jesus? Any sermon, by God's grace, any sermon that is ever preached in this pulpit will be preached with that question as a driver. Where does this passage stand in relation to Christ? A Christ-centered sermon, friends, is not one where I get up here and I say true things from Psalm 32 for like 35 minutes and then insert the plan of salvation. That is not a Christ-centered sermon. A Christ-centered sermon, as we look at verses 1 through 11, through the lens of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done for us in our place, and we understand the text. That's how we read and understand the Scripture. All right, so if we're understanding this in light of Jesus, what does this mean? It means that the sin and the iniquity, the transgression, that means the corrupt nature, all the bad things you've done, all the bad things you've thought, all the wicked things you've desired, all of that is counted to Jesus, the substitute, the God-man, the sacrifice. It's counted to him. And then through his death, through his suffering, sinners like us are forgiven and our iniquity is no longer counted to us. It's that phenomenal exchange. The first part of it is Jesus takes our sin upon himself and suffers for it and fulfills the penalty of the law for it. He willingly did all of that. And so our sin is covered by the blood of Christ. And we quite literally take refuge in him. We hide ourselves in Christ as we sing in the wonderful hymn called Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Who's the Rock of Ages? Jesus Christ, the righteous one crushed for sinners. But not only does he take our sin so that it's no longer counted to us, not only does he bear our transgressions, take the punishment that we deserve upon himself, his own Righteousness is counted to sinners so that we now have a place to stand. He fulfilled the penalty of the law in dying for sin. He fulfilled the requirements of the law in living a perfect life. And now his righteousness, his obedience, his holiness is counted as our righteousness, as our obedience, and as our holiness by faith. So all of this that we're talking about, sins satisfied for, atoned for, covered, righteousness given, provided. We don't do anything to earn that. We receive that. We don't achieve it. We receive it. If that's cute and catchy, mark that in your brain. That helps you think in those terms. These great truths that I've just been articulating and outlining, these great promises are what we call the gospel, the good news. The gospel is completely, friends, completely about what Jesus has done. It actually, the gospel itself is completely a message of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he accomplished in the place of sinners. The gospel itself 
contains nothing in it whatsoever for sinners to do. That's jarring sometimes when we think of it in those terms. Whenever we read in the scripture of what has been done by God for us and given, that's gospel. The gospel is also, these are some wonderful things to think about. Like, why is the gospel so awesome? Well, it's objective, meaning it stands outside of a sinner like me, unaffected by a sinner like me. My feelings ebb and flow. My thoughts ebb and flow. The strength of my faith ebbs and flows. Christ never changes. Don't want to knock this over. Jesus never changes. His person and his work stand always in the place of a sinner like you or like me. How is it that we have peace with God yesterday, today, and forever? It's by looking outside of ourselves to Jesus Christ, who is the solid rock. The gospel is also something, friends, this is also good news, right? The gospel is not something that's in process in terms of your standing before the Lord. The gospel is finished. It's done. When Jesus died and is giving up his life and says it is finished, he meant what he said, meaning redemption and salvation are over. Now, it's yet to be consummated. True. We are being sanctified. True. But it is done. It is certain because every requirement of God has been met in full by what Christ himself did for us. When were you saved? That's a question we get asked a lot of times. When were you saved, brother? When were you saved, sister? And I don't like to be the punchy guy in the room all the time, but I take great delight in saying, well, that actually happened 2,000 years ago on a cross and in a tomb outside Jerusalem. My salvation was done, so was yours. Then, in some ways, we can rewind it to eternity past because long before I ever decided to trust Christ, God set his love upon a sinner like me. This is gospel stuff here. This is comfort for weary strugglers here. Thanks be to God for what Christ has accomplished for us. Like I said a minute ago, we rejoice that Psalm 32 does not begin with the words, blessed is the one who hasn't sinned, who hasn't committed transgression, who has not done iniquity. Like I said, because if it began like that, we'd all be cursed, not blessed. But here's another important thing about that. We don't just mean that on the front end of conversion either. Right? Sometimes I think we talk in these terms. We'll say, yes, amen, brother. If that said, you know, blessed is the one who's never sinned, that would be bad for us. But we're Christians now. We're better than we used to be. As though, yes, there was a time when we were transgressors and there was a time when we committed sins and did iniquity, but then we got saved. And now we're not like that anymore. We're not sinners like that anymore. No, that is not how we understand this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Is our hope, our confidence, our peace, and our confession every single day we're breathing. From now until Christ returns, or we are put in the ground, that is our hope, 
our confession, our confidence, our peace. It is not that I used to be a sinner and now I'm not a sinner. It is not that at all. It is that I am now a sinner who has been covered by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is that I am now a sinner who has been united to Christ by faith. And so I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be finally saved. Nothing short of that is good news for a sinful human being. All right, back to the second half of verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And then these words. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, what does that mean? It's a good question. I think our instinct when we read a phrase like that is to read it as some kind of moral progress in the one who's blessed. But that doesn't work in the context of this song. It doesn't work in the context of the scripture for that matter either. To have deceit in your spirit would mean what? It would mean that you are a deceiver. It means you deceive others. It also means that you deceive yourself. You delude yourself. To be a person who has deceit in his or her spirit would mean that you don't paint an accurate picture. You know the truth about sin. You know the truth about yourself, but you don't confess that. You don't acknowledge that. You try to hide that. You try to keep things secret, cover it up. You maybe don't want to call something that is really sin. You don't want to call it sin. You say things like, well, God might call that sin, but I don't think it's sin. That kind of stuff. So then to say that you have no deceit in your spirit. The blessed person in whose spirit there is no deceit. Would mean that you know the truth about sin and yourself and you confess that straight up. You don't hide it. You don't deceive others or yourself. It's quite clear that that is what David means. In whose spirit there is no deceit means a person who does not hide, does not cover, does not deceive when it comes to his or her own sin and the reality of the holiness of God's law. It's very clear that that's what David means. In the verses that immediately follow verse 2, what's he going to write about? He's going to write about the devastation of hiding sin and the good of confessing sin. Which brings us now to point number two. I told you point one would be long. Point two. It is good to confess sin. It is good to confess sin. Can God's people say amen? What a wonderful thing to just acknowledge publicly. It is good to confess sin. Not celebrate it. Not condone it. Confess it. We're going to look at verses three to five. The flip side of that, not only is it good to confess sin, it is devastating to hide. it. Beginning of verse three. David says, for when I kept silent, silent about what? Well, in the context, 
It's clear David's talking about his sin, his iniquity, his transgression. When I kept silent. We've already thought about, why do I say that? Like, Justin, why do you say that? Help me understand the text. We've already thought about verse 2. Look quickly at verse 5. Look how this hangs together. It's clear that he's talking about remaining silent about his sin and his iniquity and his transgression because in verse 5, there's going to be a pivot. And he's going to say, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I'm going to confess my transgressions to the Lord. So it's very clear that what's going on for a period of time is he's not confessing. He's not being forthright. He's deceiving himself, potentially others. But he says, when I kept silent, second half of verse three, how'd that go for David? He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David says that when he did not confess his sin, when he hid it, he shriveled up. Friends, there is devastation for you in hiding sin and not confessing it. It eats away at you. That's the picture that David is painting here. A lot of times people, with the best of intentions, say unhelpful things and frankly silly things that are unbiblical. Like maybe you're going through a hard time in your life. Uh, maybe there's some kind of ongoing thing that you have. But maybe it's depression or anxiety or whatever it may be. Chronic pain even. And people will say things like, well, you know, bro, if you would just figure out that hidden sin in your life, that unknown sin in your life, if you would just figure out what that is, the Lord's trying to show you something. If you just figure out what that is, then you'd probably be doing better. It is not unknown sins that destroy us, saints. It is precisely known sins that I am hiding and not acknowledging that will eat us alive. Seriously. It's not some unknown thing. We commit millions of sins in our lives in an unknowing fashion, true. Sins of, in particular, omission, things I should be doing and don't. We do that. But it is the known sins, this thing that I'm hiding and kind of coddling and treasuring that I want to tell anybody about. It's that stuff that eats us up. Or not even just like some particular thing that you're trying to hide, but it's the fact that you are not agreeing with God and his word about what is sin. You want to argue this isn't sinful, but it's ripping your life apart. Why? Because of this reality. David goes on, verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Why is it that he was wasting away when he didn't confess and acknowledge his sin? God's hand was heavy upon me, he says. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, important observation. This agony of unconfessed, unacknowledged, hidden sin is not the work of the devil. It is the work of God. The agony piece. When David didn't acknowledge his sin, didn't confess it, when he hid it, when he was silent about it, he says the hand of God was heavy upon him all the time, day and night. What is that? That is the convicting work of God's spirit in the lives of his children. You ever been there? I've been there. Have you ever had seasons of your life where you are running off into things that you know are terrible for you, that God says is wrong? 
And there's a part of you in your flesh, because your flesh always loves sin, you enjoy it. But then there's this other aspect of you, your inner man, you're miserable. Why? It's not Satan, it's God. Praise him for that grace. He will not allow his children, and I'm using children, not enemies, children. He will not let his children go on in sin comfortably. Thank God he won't, right? Because if we could be comfortable in it, we would do it. Okay. In those seasons, many of us have been there. I enjoy it on the one hand, but I'm miserable on the other. My sin feels heavy. I'm groaning under the load. I'm wasting away. My strength is dried up. Those are very appropriate descriptions of seasons like those. All of this that we are considering, the hand of God upon us when we are deceiving ourselves and hiding our sin is good. It is the kindness of God to us. I'm not sure that we think of it that way, but we should think of it that way. It's kind because in unconfessed, unacknowledged, and hidden sin, there is no freedom, only bondage. It is slavery. In unconfessed, unacknowledged, and hidden sin, there is no joy, only sorrow. And there is, in unconfessed, hidden, unacknowledged sin, there is no forgiveness, only guilt and condemnation. So, not confessing our sin, not humbly owning and acknowledging our sin as sin goes nowhere good. But when we do acknowledge and confess our sin, there is all kinds of good. Verse five. Here's when the, the shift happens for David. I was silent. I was wasting away. But then this, I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us what he decided to do. He stopped covering up his sin. He stopped covering up his iniquity. He acknowledged it to the Lord and confessed his transgressions to him. And then how did that pan out for David? You can see it just like I did. Did God condemn him? Did God refuse to forgive him? Did God chastise him? Did God heap shame upon him? No, none of the above. God forgave him. Amen, somebody. What a God he is. When we confess our sin to him, and this, for me, I'll just be transparent as a one of the sinners who is a part of this church, this is something that I still battle in my constitution, in my mind, in my heart. Is to believe and to rest in the fact that when I confess my sins to my father, because of Christ, he is faithful and he is just and he loves to forgive me and cleanse me. I don't know if anybody else struggles to rest in that promise. May God give us faith even now to believe that. David confesses his sin, acknowledges his sin, goes to God with it, and God says, forgiven. It was true for David. It's true for us. Point three. It is good to seek God. It is good to seek 
God. We're going to look at verses 6 through 9. More precisely, it is good to seek God in prayer and confession. It is good to seek God in prayer and confession of sin. In verses 6 and 7, you put your eyes there. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach it. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Let everyone who is godly, let everyone who is wise, seek God in a timely manner, like today. That won't, you seeking the Lord and you going to God in prayer and confession, will not produce anything bad for you. It will not result in your harm. On the contrary, it will result in good, in refuge and preservation and deliverance. Verses 6 and 7, quick summary. Simply put, seek God in prayer because he is a refuge for his children. Verses 8 and 9, David is now going to give counsel. Again, inspired of the Spirit, he's going to give some counsel. David writes, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Don't be like a horse or a mule, David says. In other words, don't be ignorant and stubborn. We just considered how good there is, how much good, excuse me, there is in confessing sin, how there's freedom and joy and there's forgiveness and there's healing. There's a buzzword these days. Pursuing healing. Start with confessing sin. Here we go. Because of all of that, we should be quick to confess sin. When we sin, we should go to God in humble and honest confession. Amen? Everybody's like, yes, brother, I'm tracking with you. We should. But we often don't do that. We often don't. And that's because, to use the illustration of David, we're stubborn, we're ignorant, like a horse or a mule would be. We're stubborn in that, as we've already acknowledged today. Sometimes we like our sin. Our flesh likes sin. That saint sinner reality piece, the fact that you have your flesh and the spirit, the fact that the spirit is against the flesh and the flesh is against the spirit, that internal war, Romans 7, Galatians 5, that stuff, that means that there will always be this war that we're fighting where our flesh will always like sin. Your flesh never in terms of the fallen, corrupt part of you, will never not like sin, this side of the resurrection. So sometimes that makes us quite stubborn to go confess it because we like it. We enjoy it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't be slow to acknowledge and confess sin because you enjoy it. It will destroy you. It will destroy us, saints. It will eat us alive from the inside out. We're stubborn also sometimes in that we harden our hearts and we blind our eyes to our own sin. So, I mean, just an illustration of how this can happen. This kind of hardening of our hearts and the blinding of our own eyes toward our own sin happens, I think, most often in relationships. Various kinds. Where we are so wounded, legitimately wounded by sins committed against us. We are so convinced that we have the moral high ground that we refuse to really confess and acknowledge our own transgression. Happens all the time. Don't do that either. 
It will only, here's the irony of that. It will only hurt you. It will only consume you. You will waste away. Your soul will shrivel up. We're not just stubborn, though, and being slow to confess sin. We should be quick. We should go to God. But sometimes it's because we lack understanding. This has already been somewhat acknowledged, even in this message already today. There are times I think we are slow to confess sin because we get in our own head. We listen to ourselves, to our troubled consciences, to the enemy, the great accuser of the brethren. We believe the lie that God won't forgive us, not this time, not for this sin. We believe the lie that God's disposition toward us is not gracious and merciful and kind, but in fact, it's severe and wrathful. We believe the lie that we are not welcome in God's presence, that we can't approach the mercy seat, that it somehow is closed to us. But beloved, none of those things are true in Christ. None of them. If we were standing on our own, they would be true, but not in Christ. It is good to confess sin and to seek God in prayer. So saints, let's be quick to do so. Point four. Point four, steadfast love surrounds the righteous. Steadfast love surrounds the righteous. Verses 10 and 11. Put your eyes on verse 10, the beginning of it. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Wickedness, in other words, produces sorrow. That is always true ultimately. Sometimes the wicked prosper in this life. That's right. But they will not in the end. But who are the wicked? That's the question. Who are the wicked? Well, they are those that break God's law, who live contrary to it. That's true. They are sinners. That's true. They are not righteous. They're contrasted with the righteous. The righteous and the wicked are contrasted throughout Scripture and throughout the Psalter. But there's another contrast that David makes here in verse 10. Many are the sorrows. Put your eyes back down. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's big. The wicked are contrasted with those who trust in the Lord. So who are the wicked? The wicked are those who do not trust in the Lord. There's more. Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord, David says, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So David encourages the righteous to rejoice and the upright in heart to shout for joy. But who are those people? Who are the righteous and the upright in heart? You say, well, brother, they're not the wicked. True. Right answer. In the context of verses 10 and 11, the righteous and the upright in heart are the same ones who trust in the Lord. You can see that in verses 10 and 11, just as I can. In the context of the entire psalm, if we were going to survey it, those who are the righteous and those who are the upright in heart are the following. The ones who trust in the Lord, the ones who confess their sin to God and don't cover it, those who are forgiven, those whose sins are covered, those who do not have their iniquity counted against them by God, those who are surrounded by the steadfast love of the Lord. That is the righteous and the upright in heart, according to Psalm 32. The righteous and the upright in heart are those who say, I do not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This brings us, friends, to our additional sort of closing reflection. And there are a number of things that I, I want us to think about together. The primary emphasis of the reflection, if I had to put a title on it, would be on corporate worship and why we need the church. On corporate worship and why we need the church. So here at CBC, maybe you've been coming for a long time or maybe this is your first time. Either way, perhaps you've noticed things about even our services, our gatherings. There is a liturgy to them. There's an intentionality to the way that we go about worshiping the Lord together on Sunday. This liturgy that we have is not about providing entertainment. It is not about providing tips so that you can crush it in this life. It is not about providing therapy for psychological problems. It is about the forgiveness of sins and the declaration of righteousness on account of Jesus Christ. That is what we do. That is what we come for when we worship like this. That's what the liturgy is about. So real talk. In the Christian life, there are a number, and by a number, I mean tons, of spiritual dangers that still afflict us. Are there not? Yes, there are. And so we need help. We need sustenance. We need grace. We need strength. We need all that. We need help in particular, that the ministry of the church is designed by God to provide. And so, services like this one are meant, by God's grace, to do several things. Services like this are meant to serve as continual reminders that we are forgiven. A continual reminder that we have been declared just by God. A continual reminder that there is an inheritance waiting for us. A continual reminder that one day we will be bodily resurrected to have and take hold of that inheritance. These services are here. We do this to remind each other at least once a week together that that is our hope. Services like this also are meant to help us learn dependence upon Christ in everything. They are meant to Help us learn dependence upon God's grace in everything. They are meant to help us persevere through all of life's doubts and trials and temptations. In short, corporate worship is meant to help us all continue to trust in Christ and hope for the world to come. Why show up on Sunday? For that. This is not some spiritual vitamin, some shot in the arm so that you can go out and you know, bless God with your life. This is a lifeline for us that God would keep and sustain his children. I don't know about you, but I need a place of worship for weary and sometimes troubled souls. Don't need so much a place of worship for those who have it all figured out 
and for those who just seem to crush it in every aspect of life and for people that life just seems easy for. I don't need a place of worship like that. I need a place of worship where all the things I struggle with in this life are inconsequential when compared to the weight of eternity. A hundred years ago, a man named J. Gresham Machen wrote these words. Quote, there must be somewhere groups of redeemed men and women who can gather together humbly in the name of Christ to give thanks to him for his unspeakable gift and to worship the Father through him. Such groups alone can satisfy the needs of the soul. At the present time, there is one longing of the human heart which is often forgotten. It is the deep and pathetic longing of the Christian for fellowship with his brethren. Close quote. I need the church. We need the church to be reminded that we are forgiven, to be reminded that we now have hope. We need the church to be reminded because we need, we need to be with other people who have been forgiven, to show up, And not just know, okay, I'm forgiven, but we are forgiven. Brother, you're forgiven and I'm forgiven. And we're reminding each other that we're forgiven matters in this life. We need the church so that we can encourage one another and point one another to the hope that we have in Christ, which is the hope not of anything in this life. It's the hope of the new heaven and the new earth. And because we walk by faith and not sight, That is sometimes obscured from our view. And we need each other. And we need this so that we can have at least once a week, us together, it's where we're going, the hope to which we've been called. Let's help each other by the spirit and by the grace of God. So sincerely, I don't even just mean this if you are here today, but if a person proverbially is coming to church for entertainment, or motivation, or therapy, we've got nothing for you. But if you're coming because you need peace, and you need forgiveness, and you need righteousness, and you need hope, we've got that. Because we've been given the promise of Jesus Christ. And that's it. Just a final thought. We are Christians, saints. We are sojourners and exiles in this world. The imagery of Christians as pilgrims is really helpful. Why is that? Because we are not yet in our homeland. In this life, we battle all kinds of things. In this pilgrimage, we suffer, we face temptation, we go through trials, fiery ones. And as I said a minute ago, we walk We make this pilgrimage by faith, and sometimes the hope to which we have been called is obstructed from our view. Satan accuses us. Our consciences accuse us. All of that's true. But, beloved, we are in Christ. He has covered our sin. He has made satisfaction for our sin, and we are forgiven. Christian you are forgiven, is scandalous to say. Christ has given us his own righteousness, and it's all the righteousness, it turns out, that any of us are ever going to need. We already have it. 
And so, to use the language of the Apostle Paul, we have not been destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation. We will be one day, by the power of God in Christ Jesus, raised in perishable. And so we press on, desiring a better country, namely a heavenly one. And God is not ashamed to be called our God, because he has prepared for us a city. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us. Give us mercy for our sins. Give us grace so that we might love what's good and hate what's evil. Most of all, give us faith to continue to trust your promises. Give us faith that we might trust in Christ alone and work in us by your spirit as a church that we would love each other and that we would understand this life that we live as pilgrims in this world, that we would value appropriately being able to gather together like this, that we wouldn't forsake it, that we would come hopeful and expectant. We pray that we would love and encourage one another and bear burdens in such a way that we would help one another on our pilgrimage to the celestial city. Be good to us. Be kind to us. Keep us and protect us, we pray. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.